Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Father, help us make the most of our time this morning. Fill us full of the Holy Spirit uh, to listen, to think well, to understand and Lord, then I pray that our hearts would be stirred. Uh, there would be fresh worship. There would be fresh adoration. Lord, that our affections for you would not be stale and tired and bored, but they would be stirred. They'd be alive. They'd be real. They'd be warm. They'd be passionate. And Lord, those feelings and desires would lead to action. Lord, real life change, Holy Spirit, fruit produced in our lives for your glory, for our joy. Pray all us in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, today we're, we're about at the halfway point in the class. This may be the, exactly the halfway point. And so kind of making a turn. I mean, up to this point, in some sense, we've been laying the foundation of kind of a, a crash course in, in covenant theology. But to really get to this kind of one main question that, that I've wanted us to think about together is, what is the role of the moral law in the life of a Christian? under the covenant of grace. So that's what we're going to look at today, really specifically. But let me start out like this. Let's imagine that you were ministering to a student, and it was obvious that they were just steeped in legalism. Maybe the church they'd grown up in, the family they'd grown in, and even you can't, maybe they're not a Christian because they're so legalistic. Or maybe they're a Christian, you know, barely, but they are still got so many legalistic tendencies. And you, good morning, Karen, uh, you could take them to one book of the Bible to study to try to be the anti-legalism book, what would be the book in the Bible that you would most want to take them to to study? This is the crowd participation part. So, Galatians. Okay, Galatians. I think that that, is, that would be the right and standard answer. Okay, uh, Luther for sure, I think Calvin as well, would talk about Galatians, that it was the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Okay, this passionate declaration, you're not under the law anymore. Okay, six chapters. Paul spends essentially the first four and a half chapters, so the vast majority of the book, laying this foundation, you're saved by grace, not by works. Got it going, man. I figured it out. So, um, yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, it, it's a blessing. It's a good thing. But where we're going to pick up today is kind of where he comes to the end of that argument, and he makes a turn into practical application, and we're going to look at how he does that today because it's kind of surprising. So listen, we've read a lot of the book of Galatians this quarter. We've studied some of it. We're not going to take time to read the whole four and a half chapters. But imagine you had just read the first four and a half chapters for the first time, right? And Paul's saying all these things. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know, you started by grace. You need to finish by grace. Uh, if somebody preaches a different gospel, you know, he's accursed, even if an angel preaches a different gospel. And I'm on the same page with all the pillars of the church, and on and on and on. And then look at what he's going to do. Chapter 5, let's start in verse 12. Here's kind of where he ends his case. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now that basically he's saying the Judaizers, the people that are out there that are so passionate to hang on to the uh, ceremonial law, the Mosaic law, circumcision, he's like... I wish they'd go all the way with it. I mean, that's, he, he is so angry against them bringing back up the Mosaic ceremonial law. And that's kind of like the exclamation point on his whole case. And then look at this, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. I mean, that, that might be the theme of the whole book. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So, first point is this, freedom versus license. Paul has been making this whole case, four and a half chapters. Freedom, 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 grace, grace, grace. Not saved by law, not saved by works. Covenant of Abraham comes before the covenant of Moses. And then when he gets here, he says, you're called to freedom, brothers. Enjoy your freedom. Relish your freedom. But don't let your freedom turn into license. Okay? Paul is such a great biblical author because he realizes wisely there's a ditch on both sides of the road. On one side of the road is legalism, and that's a bad ditch to fall into. And on the other side of the road is license, and that's an equally bad ditch to fall into. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was talking about, uh, I think, kind of Romans 6, 7, and 8 said, uh, if, if you're never accused of kind of preaching too much free grace, libertinism, you're probably not preaching the gospel right. Right? Because you, I bet we've all had an experience where you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they're like, so you mean I don't have to do anything? Yeah. And at some point, I say, well, that, that sounds like you're just going to lead people to keep sinning. Paul got accused of it, right? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that the grace man increase? By no means. So that's what he was doing in Romans chapter 6. So Lloyd-Jones said, if you never get accused of that, you're probably not preaching the gospel right. But then he also said, but if you don't answer that accusation rightly, you're not preaching the gospel right either. Make sense? You, you've got to thread the needle between the two ditches. And that's what Paul's doing. And Paul knows there is a very real temptation when the goodness and the reality of justification, in a sense, washes over your soul and the bondage is broken. We still have indwelling sin inside of us, right? I mean, that's so much of what Paul is wrestling with in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And so there is a real temptation to give into it. Well, if I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card, if I've got my fire insurance, why don't I keep indulging some of the pleasures of sin? Because then I can have my cake and eat it too. This is great. All the pleasures that Satan offers for maybe 80 years on planet Earth, and then I get forgiven and go to heaven. It's like, it sounds too good to be true. And that's not the way it works. And Paul is trying to avoid that, okay? Um, think about it this way. <laughs> A fish is not free if it's out of the water. You know, if, if a, you know, they say dolphins are one of the smartest animals on planet Earth. Or, so if, if, if some dolphin had enough mind to think, I wish I could be like humans, sit out there on the beach, sunbathe, ride around in you know, jet skis and boats, that would be so much fun. Why didn't God make me that way? And the little dolphin decided, I'm going to try to act like a human. And he flopped himself up on the beach. because Now I have more freedom. He's going to die. Because he's created to function in water. And in the same way, human beings are created to function in holiness. Okay, that's what true Christian freedom is about, is the freedom to be holy and to like it and to enjoy it and to relish it and to not just have a begrudging heart and do the bare minimum. Okay, it means to obey out of desire, not out of compulsion. That's true Christian freedom. Dallas Willard, he says... Listen, grace is not against work. It's against earning. And here's just one thought that has been very helpful to me, guys. I think for Christians, if we could just take the, not just the words, but the whole categories, when we think about our relationship with God, if we could just take the whole category of earning, merit, 
and deserving totally out of our vocabulary. It's like those categories just don't exist in our relationship with God. It'd be so much more helpful. Because that's our tendency. Is sometimes we read a, pas- a passage like this where Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And we're like, oh crap, i got to fulfill the whole law? And we kind of start to slip back into this mindset of, I'm getting evaluated. I'm not doing a very good job of loving people. And i got to earn something. It's like, Paul said, no, the earning is totally gone. This is a grace-based relationship. Maybe the most helpful uh, illustration, we've talked about it in here before, is it's the difference in the way a slave serves and the way that a child serves. Okay. A slave serves a tyrannical master because if I don't, the master will beat me or hurt me or kick me out of the house. A good child serves a good daddy because he loves his daddy and he trusts his daddy and he likes to make his daddy happy. And it's all the difference in the world. But just pause with me and think for a second, guys. Externally sometimes, to look at somebody else's life, even to look at your own life sometimes, it's not always clear why is that person obeying. Are they obeying out of a good, gracious, childlike heart? Or are they obeying out of more of a legalistic spirit? Does that make sense? And so the best kind of ministry and discipleship, it's not enough just to do behavior modification, just to focus on the morals. Yes, we have to have a place for ethics, but if we don't get below that into the motives of why we obey, literally, you could just be discipling a bunch of Pharisees that are going to go to hell. But they can look really clean and nice on the outside. A couple of quotes. This is John Stott. We are set free from the law as a way of acceptance, but we are obliged to keep it as a way of holiness. Okay, that's the moral law. I don't, and listen, we don't fulfill the law perfectly now. You're never going to do that in this life. But a growing Christian should be progressively making some real progress in more and more fulfilling the law. Does that make sense? There should be progress. Samuel Bolton, he's a great Puritan. He's got a great book that addresses a lot of this stuff. He says, the law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. You you understand that? I come to Christ, I mean, I come to the Bible, and I start reading, just say the Ten Commandments, and I get condemned. I'm, I'm lost. I'm an adulterer in the heart. I'm a murderer in the heart. And I have to run to Christ and the gospel to get saved. But then once I've really been saved, in a sense, it says, now go back to the moral law and obey it as a way to please your Father, not as a way to be saved. Okay? Now, we talked about this before, but I'll mention it again briefly. Why does Paul just focus on the second half of the moral law? You shall love your neighbors yourself. Because if he had gone to, say, the self-righteous Judaizers and Pharisees and said, you've got to make sure you love God, they say, of course we love God. We go to temple, we tithe, we fast. Look at all these things we're doing in our devotion to God. And sometimes the real litmus test is, yeah, but First John says, if you don't love your brother who you can see, if you're not loving him, you know, clothing him, giving him money, giving him food, speaking the truth and love to him, then how can you claim that you really love God? It's the proof. It's the litmus test. Okay. Um, now, verse 15, he gets real specific. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by another. He probably gets really specific there because this is probably one of the main sins that the church in Galatia was struggling with. And we'll come back to that at the end and explain a little bit more than that. So, first point is just freedom versus license. Freedom is good, license is bad. Second point, spirit versus flesh. Okay, look at verse 16. Let me, let me give one little illustration before I uh, forget it. And I think this came from Martin Luther. 
He said the moral law is like a big stick. And before you're a Christian, it beats you. It shows you how bad you are so that you run to God for grace and mercy. But after you become a Christian, it's like God gives you this big stick back and he says, now this big stick is a walking stick. It used to beat you to drive you to me, but now that you're in my family, now it's a walking stick that will aid you in walking in the correct way. That's been a really helpful illustration for me. All right, spirit versus flesh. Look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What does it mean to walk by the spirit? It means at least two things. To be empowered by the Holy Spirit the power to obey, even when it's hard, and the guidance to obey. Now, a lot of times when we talk about being walking with the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, being guided by the Spirit, we think a lot more about decision-making, right? Like, well, i got to choose what kind of grad school I'm going to go to, and I don't know, and I'm praying the Holy Spirit will guide me. And listen, there is a category for that. But most of the time when the Bible talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, walking with the Spirit, that is not what it's talking about. It's talking about more that the Holy Spirit, we're going to see in this passage, that the Holy Spirit leads you into good works and the fruit of the Spirit in general, and He leads you away from sin. That's the main thing. When you're talking about being led by the Spirit, that's what it's talking about, that you're led to purity and you're led away from lust. Okay? Um, now, that's a pretty radical promise. That's a great verse to memorize. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Does that mean you'll never give in to the desires of the flesh? No. But it means in general, the growing trend of your life will be more and more towards holiness and godliness and less and less towards worldliness and fleshliness. A progressive deliverance. Verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now we've said before, Galatians and Romans are just two different versions of the same stuff. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. What part of Romans does that specifically remind you of? Romans 7. Yeah, Romans 7. You know, the second half where Paul's like, the good I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I hate is the thing I keep on doing. There's a battle going on inside. And listen, that was Paul writing in the present as a 20-year-old mature Christian in Christ. Right? 20 years in Christ, I mean. A super apostle. And he's like, I still wrestle with coveting. I know coveting's bad. I hate coveting. I don't want to covet. And then I covet and then I say, I'm going to be content. I like being content. And then I'm not content. He struggled. We struggled. It's a war. The Christian is a war zone. Okay? And we have got to be serious about the fight. Now, listen to Martin Luther here. Um, I have suffered many and various passions. And the same also, very great and vehement. But as soon as I have laid hold of any place of Scripture and stayed myself upon it as my chief anchor hold, immediately temptations vanished away. Without the word, it would have been impossible to overcome it. So the great Martin Luther is talking about all the temptations he wrestled with. But he's saying, practically what I have to do, meditate on the Scripture. Now let me show you something that I uh, heard John Piper say in a sermon one time. Very insightful. Uh, keep your finger here in Galatians. We're coming right back. But flip over to the next book, Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Ephesians and Colossians, just like Galatians and Romans are very similar letters, Ephesians and Colossians are very similar letters, but in a different way. Galatians and Romans are similar in that Paul was thinking about the same themes, but they were written years apart in different seasons of his life. Ephesians and Colossians were probably written at almost the exact same time. 
and probably even sent by the, by the same letter carrier to those two areas. They were nearby each other. So if you read Ephesians and Colossians a lot of times, you come across passages that almost look identical. So Ephesians chapter 5, and let's start in, um, let's start in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, Paul's there. I'm asking you to do a lot. Keep your finger in Ephesians 5 too, because I'm going to want you to compare and contrast. Flip over two books to the right. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and let's start in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So do you hear some of the similarities there? Okay, from the Ephesians 5 to Colossians 3. Now here's what I want you to do. Compare Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16... In Ephesians 5.18, Paul's talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 3.16, in a very similar passage, what does he say? He didn't talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit there. What was he talking about being filled with? The Word. The Word of God. Listen, you want to be the most Spirit-filled person in the, word, in, in, the, in the world? Be filled with the Word of God. Let me give you an illustration that may be helpful. Okay, For the sake of this illustration... You have to be single, right? So imagine back when you were in your single days, okay? And let's say you go on a mission trip to another country. And uh, you're in this other country. And in that other country, you meet somebody of the opposite sex that you are incredibly attracted to. You think they're the most beautiful person you've ever met in their life. Uh, you find out they're super strong Christians, super mature. They're single. They have a great sense of humor. They're really smart. They're rich, right? They're the total package. And for some reason, they're madly in love with you. You don't know why, right? You're in love with them. There's only one problem. They don't speak a lick of English. Let's just say you're in Italy for the sake of this argument, okay? They speak great Italian. They don't speak a lick of English, and you don't know any Italian. Every, all your communication has been through an interpreter. But you're ready to fall in love and get married. What should be your number one priority? Learn Italian. Now, I was actually used this illustration a few years ago in that room, literally right over there, the college Sunday school class at Briarwood, and there was a fraternity guy from Alabama sitting on the front row, and he said, teach her to speak American. And I was like, that's why you're still single, buddy, okay? Yeah, if you're in love with a woman, you learn to speak Italian. You learn to speak her language. If you're in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, you learn to speak his language. Listen. Can the Holy Spirit draw near to a believer and impress some deep truth upon his heart uh, through creation when you see a rainbow and you're reminded of the covenant of God or you see the stars at night and you start thinking about Psalm 19? Yeah, God, listen, God can do whatever he wants, right? There's a story in the Old Testament where he spoke through a donkey, right? Don't put God in a box. But if you go by a donkey and say, well, in the book of Numbers, God spoke through a donkey, to Balaam. So I'm just going to buy this donkey and then pray, God, please speak to me through this donkey. 
You're a moron, right? That donkey will probably never speak to you. You just wasted your time, money, and energy, and you're going to be doing a lot of cleanup. But, guys, we have promises. God will meet us here. So, you want to be spirit-filled? You read the Word. You pray the Word. You meditate on the Word. You journal over the Word. And then the Holy Spirit will start to bring it to your mind and apply it in your life. Okay? That's the battle going on in all of us. Here's Luther. The more godly a man is, the more does he feel the battle. Listen, sometimes we wrongly think, if I just keep getting more mature, I won't struggle anymore. The reality is, in some sense, you'll struggle at an even deeper level. Let, let me give you this illustration. I think it'll make sense. This is not an illustration. This is like real world. I can't tell you how many times I've been sharing the gospel with some lost fraternity guy. And this is a guy that probably believes the gospel, okay? Intellectually understands it. He just hasn't surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. And basically saying, listen, I'm not that bad of a guy. Yes, I like to get drunk about four nights out of the week. Yes, I like to get high fairly regularly. Yes, I like to sleep around. Yes, I look at porn. But basically, I think those are my only four sins. Other than that, I'm like a really nice guy. I'm an upstanding citizen. And if I could just get over these four things, I think I'd be fine. Right? And now, listen, you know what happens? He gets saved. And maybe God zaps all those four sins out of his life. And you know what starts to happen? He's like, oh my goodness, I'm a jerk. I didn't realize how often I get angry. I didn't realize how selfish I am. I didn't realize how arrogant and condescending I am. I'm not a servant. I'm lazy. I'm a glutton. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Imagine that this room that we're in here represented one sinner's human heart. <laughs> And it was just filled full of different rocks, dirt, dust, boulders. And the goal is get all the rocks, all the dirt, all the dust out. I think the way it would work for most people is it's like when you, and there was only one door, and you open that door to the human heart, you'd see like one or two really big boulders, right? Like the really scandalous sins. Drunkenness. And it's like, got to get this drunkenness out. And that's why a lot of times these guys are like, I think this is my only sin. But then you remove the big boulder and it's like, oh no, there's two or three or four kind of medium-sized boulders behind that. And then you spend the next 10 years trying to get those boulders out. And you think, finally I'm going to be holy. And then you get those out and you're like, oh crap. Now there's like 20 smaller boulders. And you spend the rest of your life till you're 80 trying to get those out. And you think, finally. And then you're like, oh no. There's 100 pieces of gravel and if you make it all the way to 120 and maybe you get all that gravel out and you finally start to think, I think I'm all the way there. Then you realize the whole floor is covered with so much sand and dirt I never knew was there. I can't even count it. You're making real progress. All right, I haven't used the whiteboard all class. Austin and Austin, I'm sorry that you're going to miss this wonderful illustration. Uh, okay, it's like... When you become a Christian, let's just say here's your holiness. Now, here's your level, maybe the shortest artwork of all time. You first become a Christian, here's your real practical holiness. Okay? And as you become, or let me, yeah, here's your real practical holiness. You start to really grow. Now, it's a roller coaster ride. But if you are able to trace the progress of your whole life, you're making real progress, right? It's not linear. It's a roller coaster ride. 
but there's real progress. And the reality is it probably starts out a lot more like this, and then as you mature, the dips aren't near as much because you're more consistent. Okay? That's, but here's the second point. The other thing that starts to happen is your sense of your own sinfulness. When you first become a Christian, you're like, well, here's Jesus, and there's Billy Graham, and there's my mom, and here's me. I'm not the most holy, but I'm pretty close. And then as you really start growing, your sense and awareness of your sinfulness starts going down and deeper. So in some sense, you're actually getting more holy. And in another sense, you're actually feeling a lot more wicked and dirty. Does that make sense? Listen, that's how Paul, at the end of his life, would say, I'm the chief of sinners. Paul, Paul used to murder Christians. Paul wasn't having bad weekends right before he died and accidentally murdering a Christian or two. That was out of his life. But he was so disgusted with whatever the remaining sin was, his lack of contentment, that he couldn't imagine that he himself, as a super apostle, still struggled with the doubt, the fear. Does that make sense? Okay. Austin, I think y'all get the point. Sorry y'all couldn't see the illustration. Okay. Now, imagine at this point a legalist listening to Paul verbally preaching this, this message. He gets to verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. A legalist might hear that and say, Amen. You've got to fight to fulfill the law. And look what Paul does in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And now the legalist is just baffled. What do you mean you're not under the law? You, you just told us to fulfill the law. And let's be honest, it's a little confusing, isn't it? And it goes back to that whole thing, okay? We are not under the law's curses or condemnation. We are under its commands and counsels and corrections. I don't obey the law as a way of acceptance, as a way of salvation. I do obey the law as a way to please my Father in heaven. Not a covenant. It is a command. Okay. Um, the law is like a fire. If you keep the law in the appropriate place... It's very helpful. It's very productive. It's warming. It gives light. It gives power. It gives insight. If you get the law out of its appropriate place, the fireplace, the stove, whatever it is, it's destructive. Okay. The, and guys, listen. The moral law from Christ as our Savior, it actually brings rest. There's a big difference in receiving the law, in a sense, from Moses coming down off of Mount Sinai and receiving the law from the hand of Christ our Savior. Remember what Jesus said? If anyone is weary, come to me. I'm meek, I'm lowly. Learn from me. Yoke up with me. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Guys, that verse, in some sense, says it all. It's not license. When you commit to Christ, there is a yoke. There is a burden. But rightly put on, that yoke is light. It's not burdensome. Okay? 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, His commands are not burdensome to us. But let's just all be 
honest with ourselves for a second. I bet all of us could say, I could name at least one command from the moral law that does feel burdensome to me. It feels hard. And to the degree that his commands still feel hard, just show where we're at in the sanctification process. We got more room to grow. And it's never going to be totally easy in this life. But the more you, I bet all of us could also give testimony. Hey, you know, there was something I used to struggle with five years ago, ten years ago. And by God's grace, I don't really struggle with it anymore. And in fact, I actually like obeying in that area. It's actually enjoyable to obey in that area. It's actually natural. It's actually, even if the, the tempting thought comes through my mind now, it's kind of like, I'm not even interested. That's the path we're supposed to be on. But be gracious with yourself, guys, and be gracious with others because it's a slow, winding, meandering path. And let me share one other thing that I heard Tim Keller say 20 years ago. He's actually, he came, he was doing a conference at Briarwood, and we got him just for a lunch with all the campus outreach staff, and we were asking him questions. And I don't remember the exact question that was asked, but he made it, here, here was his answer. I don't even remember the question. I remember the answer. It was a great answer. He said, listen, all of you, right, and everybody that's, listen to this right now, is in full-time ministry. And this was the same case because it was all these campus outreach stuff. He said, all of you are the guys and the girls that when you were on campus, you were the guy or the girl that always showed up every week for the discipleship group. You were the guy that always had your verse memorized. You were the girl that shared her faith regularly. You were the guy that always like had your chapter in the Jerry Bridges book read. That's one of the reasons you're on staff. And he's like, and I'm not, that, that's a good reason for you to be on staff. But there's tons of people in your groups that are real Christians and they're not going to have their chapter read every week. They're not going to have their verse memorized every week. They're not going to be faithful and bold in evangelism. And it's not that you just need to throw the standards out the window, but you do need to be more gracious in understanding that everybody may not be as gifted and as called as you. Does that make sense? And that just, again, that takes real spirit-filled discernment. How do I preach the moral law in the right way, hold people to a holiness standard, but then do it in a very grace-based way. And, and that could be a whole scenario class on that. I'll, I'll just give you one word. To me, the most helpful thing on that is this. Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you. I'm not going to beat you up about your sin. But go and sin no more. Don't ever do it again. I think that is the great picture, speaking the truth in love grace and yet holiness all right verse 19 paul gets really specific now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality and let me just note this in almost all paul's list of sin he almost always puts the sexual stuff at the beginning it was then and guys it is now one of the main ways that christians are still tempted Right? I don't need to illustrate that point. But number two, one of the most important ways that we show our distinction from the world. we got to take it serious. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's four main categories, sexual sin, witchcraft, relational sins, and then the partying types of sin, drunkenness. 
most people in Birmingham, Alabama, and the Southeast U.S. and the Midwest are probably not dealing with much witchcraft and sorcery. Maybe somebody's out there playing with a Ouija board. I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen, okay? But the other three categories are pretty common, are they not? Not much has changed in 2,000 years. Now, can a Christian do one of these sins and still be a real Christian? Absolutely, right? The, the classic example would be King David, right? Uh, adultery and murder. I don't want to even make the list. Okay? Uh, Noah, after in some sense he'd just been the savior of the world, then he gets drunk. Matthew Poole said it this way, falling into the water doesn't kill a man. Drowning in it does. Similarly, falling into sin doesn't damn a man, but drowning in it does. So, I'm going to sin, you're going to sin. That should never be an excuse for our sin on the front end of sin, but on the back end of sin, it should be a comfort, but not the kind of comfort that lets us wallow in the sin. As soon as I'm convicted of the sin, I ought to start the process of confession and repentance instantly to get out. Don't stay in your sin for even a second. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Okay? Um, now, a couple things to say here. You, just like you can't pick two or three of those sins and say, well, I'm going to really fight and kill two or three of those sins. The other ones I'm going to hang on to. You've got to kill them all to whatever degree they show up in your life. And you've got to disciple, mentor other people to do something. With the fruit of the Spirit, you can't say, well, I like these two or three. I'm really good at these. Because your person, listen, and most people based on their personality will have two or three that come more naturally. I've got to be growing holistically in all areas. That, that's one of the ways you can tell a real Christian from somebody with just a nice personality. Right? It's like, well, this person, they seem really gentle. It's like, yeah, but they're just an introvert. That's why they're gentle. They don't ever talk. But they have no self-control. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. That's just a personality. Likewise, that person is so self-controlled. Yeah, he's disciplined, he's rigid, and he's a jerk. Okay? He doesn't have any love. He doesn't have any patience. I've got to be growing holistically in all of these things. Now, has this phrase at the end where Paul says, against such things there is no law, has that phrase ever seemed weird to y'all or bothered y'all or out of place? I mean, I, this is one of those passages I probably memorized back in high school, right? But, I mean, for years, like, I don't even know what that means, right? How does that fit in? But think about it. The Judaizers, right, which were these self-righteous Pharisees that at least professed faith in Christ, they were saying to not be circumcised is against the law. we got to be serious about keeping the law. And Paul is trying to say, I am serious about keeping the moral law. Look at what I'm promoting. I'm not promoting license, guys. That's what he's being accused of. He's like, guys, I'm promoting good things that are obviously in line with the law of God. Love your neighbor. I'm not promoting things that are against the law. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, does anything seem strange about... I mean, we just looked at this one paragraph. Okay, started in verse 16, ending in verse 24. Does anything seem strange about... He started with... You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the flesh, the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the very things you want. 
I mean, that sounds like there's a war going on. And verse 24 sounds like it's already a done deal. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. He makes it sound like the war is over there. What's going on? It's this. Think about the way marriage works. When somebody gets married, you know, they stand in the church, the courthouse, wherever, and before God and everybody, they say, you know, for better or worse, sickness, sin and health, rich or poor, till death do us part, we're committed, we're one. And the preacher, the judge, or whoever says, I now pronounce you man and wife. In one sense, they really are one, right? They are legally one. They're spiritually before God, one. Practically speaking, are they one? No. Sometimes they get in an argument at the reception about how they're going to feed cake to each other or something, right? It's evident they ain't one, you know? I'm not sure they like each other right now. I've been married 23 years. I'm madly in love with my wife. I love her much more than I loved her 23 years ago when we got married. We're much more practically one than we were then. Positionally, spiritually, legally, we're not any more one, but practically we are. But you know what? She can still drive me crazy sometimes and not in the fun way, right? It's the same thing with Jesus. When somebody first becomes a Christian, there is a once and for all commitment, surrender, trust. I'm dying to my old self. But then there's a daily progressive walking it out, growing up in it. Here's John Owen from Sin and Temptation. You've heard this quote. Here's a little bit more of the context. Make it your daily occupation. Do not cease a day from that work. Be killing sin or it will kill you. Thus, in spite of the mortification exhibited in the cross of Christ for each and every sin. So he's saying in one sense, when Jesus died on the cross, all the Christian sins were killed that day. We must apply its efficacy by our daily mortification of the flesh. I must take the spiritual reality which happened 2,000 years ago and daily I must work it out in my practical life. Martin Luther said the nails, when it talks about, you know, crucifying the flesh, what are the nails? Again, they are the Word of God that penetrate by the impulse of God's grace and prevent the flesh from following its own desires. If you have one specific area where you're really struggling with sin, let's just say you're really struggling with gluttony, you ought to go find the five or six verses in the Bible about gluttony and memorize them and meditate on them. And then when you say a little blessing before the meal, remember one of those verses. I mean, take the word and do everything practically you can to help fight against the sin. Here's a quote by Sinclair Ferguson. This has maybe been the most practical quote outside of the Bible that has helped me take sin serious and fight sin over the last, I don't know, two or three years since I first read it. What then is killing sin? It is the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation at the moment we become conscious of, it, conscious of His existence. As soon as you realize, I am being tempted to do something sinful, I am being provoked to do something sinful, you immediately reject it. Not going to do it. You're in a conversation. Somebody tells a funny joke, but it's really close to the line. A little bit scandalous, but it's not like, ah, I don't think they crossed the line. They got really close. I got a funny joke, too, I heard. I think my joke's across the line. At that moment, as soon as you're like, just reject it. I'm not going to say it. Help me, Lord. Keep my mouth shut. You're in a conversation. Somebody is saying something about somebody, and it's true, 
They're not lying, but it is not helpful. There's no, there is no good reason for them to share this truth about this person. They're just gossiping or slandering, you know. Again, it's true. It's not a lie. That's really bad. This one's true. They're like, I'm just speaking the truth, man. But, but they're not doing it to build anybody up. And you're kind of tempted to say, oh, I know something. You reject it before you even open your mouth. And whatever the sin is, you're struggling with. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So listen, if the Holy Spirit gave us salvation, if He gave us daily life, if He gave us new birth in a sense, every day I'm walking by the power of Him to be sanctified, to stay in the fight. John Calvin said, live refers to the inner power and walk refers to the outward actions. It's just like Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation. You already have it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take it serious. Do your part. Why? Because God is doing the inner work. He's working inside you to change your desires, but then you've got to flesh it out. Now, he's really going to get more personal, right? Freedom versus license. <laughs> live in freedom, don't live in license. Spirit versus the flesh. Live in the spirit, don't live in the flesh. And, and y'all know this, guys. I didn't mention it, but I think we all know it. When Paul uses the word flesh like this, he's not literally talking about skin. It's not like skin is evil. Flesh was kind of a word that he came up with to describe our old man, our sin nature. I think the best way is indwelling sin. People can sometimes get in debate, well, is it better to call it old man or old nature? I think if you want to be the most theologically, biblically precise, it's indwelling sin, remaining sin. Okay, But that's usually what people mean when they use those terms. Here's the last point. Compassion versus comparison. Compassion versus comparison. Look at verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, when you have any works-based type of religion, that kind of culture, it doesn't lead towards loving one another. It necessarily leads in the opposite direction because everything becomes a competition. Listen, for many of us, you, you can be a real Christian. Your, your heart has really been, you know, washed with the blood of the Lamb. And yet, functionally, there can be a lot of practical legalism left over, right? That what makes me significant, what gives me my sense of self-worth before God is my good deeds. And not just what gives me my self-worth before God, what gives me my self-worth before people. You know, if you're living that way, you would never say it out loud. No, I just, I just, man, just the blood of Jesus for me. That's it. I, but practically, it's like, how many people I got coming to the fifth quarter tonight? And I hope I got more than him because last week I didn't and I felt like a big loser. Right? That's where we're tempted at least to live functionally. And when you do that, and the other guy has a bigger, better ministry, you don't do what Paul says, rejoice in his rejoicing. You kind of hate him. It's not fair. I worked harder. I was out later on campus. He goes to bed early. I, that's not fair. And then if you do have the biggest, best ministry, you get the most people to New Year's conference this year, and your staff partner doesn't get many people. Now, you're going to say something nice. Well, praise the Lord. It doesn't matter, brother. You know, we're all in this fight together. In really, you're like, yes. You know, this guy's a loser. He's probably going to get fired next year, and I'll get a promotion. 
right? I mean, that, those are the things that are tempted to happen in our heart when we're thinking that way. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't do it. Don't get conceited. Don't get arrogant. Don't mock each other. Don't look down. But neither envy each other. And guys, the only thing that can really, really, really free you from this is I'm so in love with Christ. I'm married to Christ. I just want to make Christ happy. What other people think about me? I don't know. I don't even really care. Yeah, I kind of know. I hear sometimes what they say and maybe the way. I, but just, I'm not going to spend time thinking about that because who cares? What if I do impress all my peers? What's that worth? It's worth nothing. I want to please the heart of my Savior. Okay? Listen, legalists are hard on themselves and therefore they're hard on other people. Don't be a legalist. Don't be somebody that weeps when others succeed and rejoice when they fail. Let's keep going. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. I mean, do you see how verse 1 could never flow in a legalistic religion? This only flows in a love religion. Hey, my brother's in sin. I better be broken for him. I better be humble for him. I better love him enough that I'm willing to go have a hard conversation. I have courage. I'm not a coward. I'm going to go confront him. But you know what? I'm going to do it really graciously. I'm going to do it really humbly. You know part of the reason I'm going to do it so graciously and humbly? Because I realize I could be the one in the ditch. In fact, I might be the one in the ditch later. Just, just by nature of being in ministry long enough, I've had numerous times where I have had to go have hard, confrontational conversations with people. And oftentimes where it's like they don't want to have the conversation. And part of what I have tried to say genuinely from my heart <laughs> to help their perspective is, listen, this is not fun for me. I, I didn't wake up this morning like excited about this. I don't enjoy having these conversations. I realize this might ruin our friendship. But one of the reasons I'm coming after you trying to have this conversation in love is I don't think I'm better than you. I think there's high potential that one day I could be in the exact same place that you are, and if I ever am, I want you to come after me. I'm trying to do unto you as I would want you to do unto me. Now listen, if you just say that as a line and you don't mean it, they'll sniff it out, right? But if there can be just a tiny bit of sincerity and genuineness in your heart, it can help break down the walls of self-protection and defense. Okay. Because there's humility in that. Paul says, listen, you're more spiritual. That's okay. I mean, it is okay. I mean, it's not wrong if one of you guys, you know, working with high schoolers like, well, we got this new 15-year-old guy in our youth group, and I think I'm more mature than him. That's not, that doesn't mean you're arrogant. That's probably just objectively honest. But you just shouldn't boast in that because why are you more mature than him? The grace of God. God's just been working in your life more and deeper. God gets all the credit for that. So you hold that reality, I'm more spiritual, really loosely and really humbly. So yeah, you might have the spiritual maturity, Paul says, those of you who are spiritual, to go after that 15-year-old in sin, but it don't kind of hold it over his head. When I was 15, I was never stupid enough to do something like this. You go with graciousness. You go with tenderness. You go with compassion. Okay. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I mean, my guess is we've all had at least one experience about like this. Whether it was a family member, you know, 
a fraternity brother, a college roommate, or somebody we're ministering to, and they get stuck in some kind of scandalous sin, and then you're trying to help them out. It's not fun, it's not easy, and it's time-intensive, right? It takes your time, your energy, maybe sometimes literal sweat. doesn't necessarily take blood, but it almost feels like it. Sometimes takes some tears. But it literally is like going and helping lift a burden off their back. They're not heavy enough to carry. I mean, they're not strong enough to carry. And Paul says when you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ. John Calvin said somewhere that the perseverance of the saints is a corporate venture. Right? That's Calvin's way of saying there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. You want to persevere all the way to the end, you better live in community. You know, again, if you're loving like this, if you're living like this, it doesn't mean you're perfectly fulfilling the law of Christ, but there's real sincerity. You're making forward progress. Richard Sibbs, another great Puritan, he has a famous book called The Bruise Read. If you want to read a good Puritan book, that's a great place to start. But he has this great little line where he says, under the covenant of grace, sincerity is perfection. Right? If you have a little child one day, most of you will one day have a little child, and he comes home, you know, from K4 preschool one day, and says, look, Mom, look, Dad, I drew a picture of you. And you look at it, and you're like, that looks like a picture of an elephant that got in a car accident. It looks terrible. You're not going to say it. You're going to say, thank you, buddy. That's amazing. And you're not going to be lying. There's going to be a sense of, my four-year-old did the best he could to draw a portrait of me. It's sincere, and so I like it. And if a sinful human being's heart can be that gracious, so can Father God. That when we like little infants in Christ are trying to stumble forward in holiness with all kinds of remaining sin and flaws and weakness and stupidity, but there's genuine sincerity. The Father says, perfect, you're doing a great job. And I'm pleased and I'm happy. Okay. What's the law of Christ? It's love God, love your neighbor. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the moral law, but again, from the hand the nail-pierced hand of a risen Savior and not from Moses on Mount Sinai. No application. I want you to think about these two questions this week. Do you tend to struggle more with legalism or libertinism? And why do I want you to wrestle with that? Okay? Some of us go back and forth. But just, guys, know yourself so you can better protect yourself. If you tend to be more of a libertine, using grace as a license to sin, you probably need to memorize more verses about practically fighting sin, killing sin, holiness. If you tend to be more of a legalist, I'm not really sure God loves me. Maybe he loves me, but I don't really think he likes me. You probably need to spend more time meditating, memorizing verses about the goodness of God, the graciousness of our Savior. Now listen, memorize and meditate on both. But know yourself, know where you have weakness. And then I'd ask you this to make it really practical. Where and more who do you struggle to love the most? That'll, that, that's a great question for the most mature Christian to expose a lot of the sin. Who's the person in your life right now that you're having the hardest time loving in the way we've talked about? 
Sinclair Ferguson says, I hope you all are reading the whole Christ. You can only read one of the books this semester. Read the whole Christ. It says, legalism and licentiousness are non-identical twins. They're different. They look really different, but they come from the exact same root. You know what the root is? Okay, Doubting the goodness of God. Because the legalist says, God's not a very good God. He's not going to give me something for free. I've got to work my tail off to hopefully add enough merit to my record that then God maybe will give me a little bit of grace. He didn't really believe the gracious, good heart of the Father. But see, guys, the libertine, the craziest, wicked, non-religious, scandalous sinner. Listen, Tim Keller used to say this for years, and I'll be honest. I never, I never got it. I couldn't get my hands. like, how? He said, well, they're both self-salvation projects. I'm like, I, I, I'm not following you. And this Ferguson has brought it home for me because the libertine is saying, I don't believe God's a good father. He's not going to give me good gifts. Same thing, doubting the goodness of God. So I'm just going to break all his rules so I can still go get some good gifts on my own. So the deepest answer for all of our problems is preach the goodness of God the graciousness of God. And that will attack the root of legalism and the root of libertinism at the exact same time. And guys, the, but you're like, I'm still worried about people getting so overwhelmed by grace that they use it as license. They get, okay, okay. That's, that, that's, a fair, that's a fair concern because Paul's concerned about it. The best, safest, most central place to stay focused is on the cross of Christ. Because nowhere... In the whole Bible and all of human history, do you see more of a clear demonstration of how radically committed God is to holiness and righteousness? He is not winking at sin. He hates sin. Don't do it. It's never worth it. He hated it so much that he said, I won't let sin in my people. And the only way to get it out is the death of my son, Then that's what we'll have to do. But as much as God is committed to his holiness... He is committed to his own love and graciousness and tenderness that he loves us and he's kind and he pursues us and he wants the best things for us even if his own son has to suffer. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that once and for all you finished the work that your father assigned to you and you extinguished the wrath of God against all of your people. Thank you that we live in that freedom. I pray for myself and everybody here in this, Lord, that we would believe that more. We would feel the reality of that freedom from wrath even more. But I pray that we would never go in the wrong opposite direction of using grace as a license to sin, but we would use grace as a spur to holiness and righteousness. Not because we have to, but because we want to when we get to, and there'd be real joy in our obedience. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 